Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. What would you do to protect the children, the most innocent and vulnerable of us all? This time on Invisible Choir. How do we fail our children? It seems all too often that the systems we have in place to protect the vulnerable never come through when they are most needed. We the people have asked for the Child Protective Services System to be there for those who might someday need it. After all, everything we do, every action we take in front of our children is something they learn from and eventually incorporate into their own lives. They are our most vulnerable, but mostly, they're innocent. The job of CPS social workers is difficult enough, but with rising caseloads and fewer and fewer resources, it seems more and more that children are falling through the cracks, and abusive parents are finding new and creative ways to manipulate the systems designed to protect the children, regardless of whether or not they do. They become masters of a new game, a sleight of hand that has protective services looking one way while they take their children down another, much darker path. It's this deception that creates scenarios where we miss all of the critical signs, that something was wrong, that the children were in danger. And sometimes, sadly, by the time we recognize the subtle signs, it's already too late. I cannot stress how important it is to know that today's episode involves serious violence against children. If you feel overwhelmed or believe this topic may be triggering for you, please turn this episode off now. This is the story of Gabriel Fernandez. In 2003, Pearl Fernandez was investigated by the Los Angeles County Child Services for the alleged neglect of her son. Months before this investigation launched, Pearl and her son Ezekiel had been traveling in a car and were involved in an accident. During the incident, her young son was not wearing a seatbelt and had suffered a serious head injury. Fast forward to a year later, and a relative had made a complaint to social services that Pearl was physically abusing Ezekiel who had suffered a traumatic brain injury. Social workers from the L.A. County Department of Child and Family Services investigated, but found the allegations of abuse were unfounded. In 2005, Pearl gave birth to another son, Gabriel. But shortly after his birth, Pearl's mother took custody of the infant. In October of 2012, Pearl and her boyfriend, Isaro Aguirre, took over the care of Gabriel, claiming he was being mistreated by relatives. But eventually, 
the truth would surface, and the dangers inherent in the home provided by Pearl and Asaduro became self-evident. On May 22, 2013, tragedy would befall the Fernandez family's Palmdale household. Pearl called 911 and told deputies that her son had fallen and knocked his head on the dresser. She explained to the responding deputies that Gabriel was unresponsive and not breathing. Gabriel was pronounced brain dead that same day and eventually taken off life support just two days later after his condition declined. But what the autopsy later revealed was simply shocking. Dr. James Reby, who worked for the L.A. County Coroner's Office, was in charge of handling the eight-year-old boy's autopsy. Most autopsies are conducted within a few hours, sometimes up to a day, but the autopsy of young Gabriel Fernandez took two entire days. During the post-mortem examination, a total of nine metal BBs were found throughout his body. One had actually penetrated and become lodged inside of Gabriel's lungs. Dr. Reby had also found 10 patches of traumatic alopecia from his hair being forcefully ripped away from his head. In addition, Gabriel had four of his teeth knocked out and presented numerous rib fractures that were relatively recent and all in a semi-healed state. The condition of the boy's body told investigators a much different story than the accidental one Pearl had mentioned during the 911 call. This tells me that Gabriel's uh, rib cage has been uh, struck by blunt force multiple times from multiple different directions over a period of weeks. Not to mention all of the burns on Gabriel's hands and feet. The true extent and severity of his injuries was nearly incomprehensible to first responders. Paramedic James Murdoch and one of the first L.A. County Sheriff's deputies on scene described their observations of a young boy who clearly suffered more than abuse at the hands of his parents. His horrific injuries suggested he was the victim of prolonged torture. Strangulation marks around his neck. His ankles were swollen. Uh, I believe his uh, left palm uh, looked like it was burned. Bite marks, bruises, head to toe. Uh, skull fractures. Is there burns on his body and bruising throughout his entire body? And it looked like uh, his penis had uh, somebody attempted to cut it off. One of the critical care nurses who was in charge of taking care of Gabriel was in utter disbelief at the injuries she observed on his body. He had clearly suffered horrendous abuse at the hands of someone purely evil. These are multiple injuries. Um, different types. There were abrasions, there were open wounds, there was bruising, there was swelling, there was marks on the legs, there was skin missing off the top of the neck. Investigators were tasked with finding out who had hurt Gabriel so badly and why. But it wouldn't take long before they knew exactly what had happened inside of the Fernandez home. Robert Fernandez, Gabriel's maternal grandfather, remembers the day perfectly. In October, just six months prior to his grandson's death, Pearl came to their home and asked to take over guardianship of her son. She wanted him back. After his birth, she signed a document that relinquished all of her parental rights, but Pearl's parents refused to return Gabriel to her custody. 
Robert knew the young boy was in much better care with them over Pearl. Because her parents were refusing to comply, Pearl got the sheriff's department involved. According to Robert, the document they provided that backed their claims was overridden by the deputy who responded. And the deputy said, no, uh, I don't know what he started talking about. We had to go to court. Deputy David Misenhoff explained that the document itself showed that Pearl was able to take her children back anytime she wished. It was part of their original legal agreement. Much to the dismay of Gabriel's caring grandparents, he was going back to live with her. But as soon as Pearl regained custody of her youngest son, things would quickly move from bad to worse. From the start, Pearl's boyfriend, security guard Isadro Aguirre, had a real disdain for Gabriel. He regularly bullied and insulted the young boy, frequently calling him, quote, gay and picking on the child any chance he had. Keep in mind, this is an eight-year-old pre-adolescent child. Even if he had discovered at that young of an age that he was gay, harassment of that sort can have devastating consequences on the development of a child, especially when facilitated by a parental figure. Gabriel's siblings watched in terror and absolute horror as the abuse of Gabriel escalated. The mistreatment quickly evolved from verbal bullying and tormenting to physical abuse. Dehumanized and locked away from any semblance of a typical healthy childhood, Gabriel had no choice but to continually absorb the now targeted harassment and abuse from his mother and her boyfriend. Ezekiel watched as his younger brother was routinely placed in a cabinet no bigger than those typically found in a kitchen. The doors to the cabinet were handcuffed in order to lock Gabriel inside. Sometimes, before he was forcibly placed inside, he would have a handkerchief placed over his mouth or a sock placed inside to act as a gag. Silencing the horror, he surely felt locked away in the cramped, dark space. On one occasion, Ezekiel had been caught by his mother trying to sneak food to his brother Gabriel, which resulted in his own physical abuse. Those at the school he attended began realizing something was terribly wrong. Gabriel would regularly come to school bruised and battered, a walking shell devoid of the excitement and energy typical of any happy, healthy eight-year-old boy. His first grade teacher, Jennifer Garcia, asked Pearl during a parent-teacher conference if there was anything wrong going on inside of the Fernandez household. I knew in my heart that she was doing what he said she was doing. We're talking about, you know, his reading level or something or, you know, his report card. And she said, because I don't hit my kids. And she said, because I don't hit my kids, I make them do exercises. Jennifer recalled the time she had found a note hidden in his desk just shortly after he died. I love you, Mom, and Gabriel is a good boy. Jennifer shared with investigators the type of abuse Gabriel had confided in her about. She said, well, sometimes my mom makes me bleed. And I said, well, where do you bleed? And he said, well, on my body. Because she hits me with a belt. And he's like, you know that part with the metal on it? He's like, that part. Gabriel's horrifying claims left Jennifer in the difficult position of not knowing exactly what to do, who to contact, or how she could help. I didn't want to call. I didn't know what to do. I don't know, I could look at his face and, you know, not be able to assure him that that wasn't going to happen again when I couldn't say that. Before she could do anything, 
Jennifer asked Gabriel if he was telling the truth. She needed to know for sure before taking action. The questioning upset Gabriel. Are you sure that that's what really happened? And then he did eventually tell me, and he was like really angry, and he, you know, he said, well, it's because my mom shot me in the face with a BB gun. Jennifer reached out to the Department of Child and Family Services to report the abuse. But because of her phone call and the subsequent investigation, Gabriel began suffering more and more at home. When Gabriel stopped showing up to school, his teacher became increasingly worried. She asked the office administration if anyone had been notified about his absences, to which she was informed by school officials that Pearl told them her son had been sent to live with family in Texas. She so very much hoped that was true, until just a week later when she was notified of the eight-year-old's death. After Gabriel died, Detective Long with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department interviewed Asadro, who explained everything that had happened in detail. When Detective Long asked Asadro what happened, he claimed that he hit the boy ten times in the head with his fist and then another ten times with an open hand. But Asadro had what he believed was a justifiable excuse as to why he attacked the little boy. At some point, Asadro claimed that Gabriel asked Pearl to leave him and that this had sent the man into a violent rage. In searching the couple's home, investigators found a proverbial house of horrors. Blood-speckled walls with large holes where Gabriel's head most likely had been forced through, a baseball bat with blood on it, as well as a Cat5 Ethernet cable that had contained blood. Both Pearl Fernandez and Isadro Aguirre were placed under arrest and charged with the murder of eight-year-old Gabriel Fernandez. Luckily, detectives had access to the one person who had seen everything unfold in the house, someone who was willing to tell them everything about the abuse Gabriel had endured at the hands of his mother and her live-in boyfriend. Not only was Gabriel subject to physical and psychological abuse, he was starved, but there were times he was given food. And I have to contextualize this part a bit, the details are enough to disturb anyone. According to Ezekiel, Gabriel's older brother, he had seen Pearl and Asadro feed him spoiled spinach. When the young boy ate it, he immediately started retching and vomiting all over the table, at which point Isadro made him eat his own vomit. During the autopsy, they had looked at the contents of Gabriel's stomach and found a mysterious gray substance inside. Criminalist Stephen Schlieb was tasked with trying to identify what the substance was, but Ezekiel already had the answer. Overton, host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Join me each week to hear true and unscripted stories of the cases I actually worked during my career as a major crime investigator in South Louisiana. Go to realliferealcrime.com where you can listen to each week's episodes and find links to our social media. I appreciate y'all. Don't let me catch you down on the bike.
And that same material was also what composed the gray particles uh, from the stomach contents. Isadro and Pearl fed cat litter riddled with fecal matter to Gabriel. Ezekiel watched it happen. Stephen Schlieb was able to positively match and identify the substance based on his description. On May 28, 2013, just four days after Gabriel passed away, both Pearl Fernandez and Isadro Aguirre were charged with capital murder in connection with the eight-year-old's death. From June to September of that same year, protests took place all across Los Angeles County with many people calling for major reform of the Child Protective Services. This was the worst case of child abuse in recent memory. And on April 6, 2016, four Department of Child and Family Services workers were arrested and charged with child abuse after falsifying public records related to the investigation into Gabriel's abuse that were supposed to have taken place. But this was only the beginning. In October 2017, Isadro's trial began. The prosecution was relentless. They wanted to show that both Isadro and Pearl were nothing short of all that is evil in this world. Prosecutor Jonathan Hatami wanted to express to the jury what happened to Gabriel, and in the process, show how the case had affected him emotionally. Gabriel was dying. They were killing him. That's intentional murder by torture. The defendant actually liked torturing Gabriel. He got off on it. He got off on it. And when you think about all the evidence, I know it's hard to believe that. It is hard to believe that, but he did. The defendant took everything from him. Everything. Hold him responsible. It ends here. It ends now with you, the people. Many witnesses testified at the trial on Gabriel's behalf, including his biological father, Arnold Contreras, who explained to jurors how his family would never be the same and that he felt helpless and guilty because he, quote, should have been there for Gabriel. A father who would have done anything to protect his child was wrecked with a tremendous sense of guilt. While Gabriel was suffering by the very hands of those trusted to protect him, Arnold was incarcerated and unaware of the abuse Gabriel routinely suffered during his absence. For the defense, they didn't want to argue that their client wasn't guilty of murder, because of course he was. But they didn't believe the special circumstances of torture should dignify the case as warranting a charge of capital murder, which included a possible sentencing of the death penalty. According to Asadro, he didn't mean for Gabriel to die. It just, quote, happened. Imagine sitting in that galley and you're one of the jurors. When you hear something like that, what exactly goes through your mind? How are you going to feel? They say that only animals prey on the weak, but it takes a special kind of monster to prey on a vulnerable child. The defense went a step further to try to humanize Asadaro's behavior. They brought up his low IQ and detailed that while growing up, he'd always been, quote, slow in his educational studies. Not only was this a topic of discussion, but they wanted to show that his criminal record was clean and due to his occupation, it showed that he was able to take care of those in a weakened state. Just prior to being arrested, 
Nasadaro worked in an elderly home taking care of those who are just as vulnerable as children. Esadaro's trial lasted just one month and came to an end on November 13, 2017. The defense showed a portion of the interrogation tapes after Gabriel's death with Esadaro that showed him crying, asking if he could see the young boy, therefore proving despite his actions that he actually cared about and loved Gabriel. They claimed it showed that he had remorse for what he had done and that his life was worth saving. Sorrow's life is now in your hands, ladies and gentlemen, and I am pleading for his life. The defense making its final plea for Asaro Aguirre. If Asaro is sentenced to death, this family will be devastated. Prosecutor Jonathan Hatami was going to fight the defense tooth and nail to show that Asaro deserved nothing less than the death penalty. No human with a heart and soul could do that to an innocent little boy, and no human with any goodness in them and do that to a helpless little child. Asaru Aguirre punched Gabriel so hard that the skin came detached from his cheek, from his chin, from his mouth. It's another day where nobody saved Gabriel. It was another day where nobody heard Gabriel's cries or Gabriel's screams, with the exception of the defendant. On November 15th, a jury returned their verdict and recommendation for Asaru's sentencing. We, the jury in the above entitled action, having found the defendant, Isaro Aguirre, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree and having found the special circumstance to be true, fix the penalty at death. After Asadaro's trial was completed, it was time to prepare for Pearl's day in court. But instead of going to trial, she accepted a plea deal on February 15, 2018. Is that correct, Defendant Pearl Fernandez? Yes. And with that soft yes, 34-year-old Pearl Fernandez, the mother of eight-year-old Gabriel Fernandez, pleaded guilty, guilty to willfully and knowingly killing her son and torturing him. Do you fully understand the plea? Yes. By pleading guilty and not having a trial, Ms. Fernandez will not face the death penalty. Stipulations of Pearl's plea deal include not attempting to file an appeal and that she agreed she was going to spend the rest of her life behind bars. If she didn't accept the plea, she would be eligible to be tried in a death penalty case. On June 7th, 2018, Isadro and Pearl sat together at a courtroom table to face the consequences of their actions. Uh, I was privy to the photographs, coroner's photographs, the extent of the injuries and what have you. And this almost demands that comment be made uh, about this case. It goes without saying that uh, the conduct was horrendous, inhumane and nothing short of evil. Uh, the repeated beatings, burning, starving, binding, uh, shooting Gabriel with uh, BBs that were embedded in different parts of his body, knocking his teeth out with a bat, uh, locking him in a dark cabinet while he's bound, and starving this, this poor child. I, I, it is unimaginable the pain that this child probably endured. And uh, from what I heard, Gabriel was a, a, a kind, loving, individual who just wanted to be loved. Just prior to issuing his sentence, Judge George Lomelli felt compelled to make a statement regarding the case. He wanted to share his thoughts directly with the two individuals responsible for Gabriel's death. 
and he wanted them to listen closely. You want to say that the conduct was animalistic, but that would be wrong. Because even animals know how to take care of their young. Some to an extent that they will sacrifice their own lives uh, in caring for their young. Um, I, I remember seeing years ago a report on the news that, that uh, and this at least sent the point home to me about animals, and there was this uh, cat who had given birth to a litter of cats, and the house wherein the kittens were in uh, was on fire. And that's what I think it made the news, because the fire department uh, was trying to put the fire out, but each time the mother went in to retrieve uh, a kitten, and she would emerge from the house uh, by the scruff, uh, holding the kitten by the scruff, uh, and, and uh, would manage one by one to, to bring him uh, or her to safety. And the last time, uh, the house was lost, and the fire department tried to keep this, this cat from going into the house, but it managed to elude them, went into the house, and they thought, well, she's lost. And uh, I never forgot thinking, uh, she, she made it out of the house. She had the cat by the scruff, except that she was singed, burning her face. But the, the, the thing that really struck me was the cat was not blind. The intensity of the heat burned her eyes. But she never let go of that kitten. And so when you want to say, first instinct is to say, you know what, this is animalistic. No, it's, it's beyond animalistic, because animals know how to take care of their young. You know, I can only wish, I, I really do, that you both, in the middle of the night, you wake up and you think of the injuries that, that you subjected this poor young man, this poor seven-year-old, um, and that it tortures you. I rarely say that. I rarely say that. It'll be a different type of torture because you won't be in pain, physical pain. But I'm not capable, I'm not sure that you're capable of doing that. Um, but that's my wish. Judge Lomelli first rendered the sentence for Pearl Fernandez, Gabriel's mother, with respect to her plea agreement. Accordingly, it is the judgment and sentence of this court that the defendant shall be sentenced to a term of life in prison without the possibility of parole for the underlying murder charge coupled with the special tur uh, torture special circumstance allegation under Penal Code Section 190.2, uh, subsection A18. And then... He read aloud the court's sentence for Asadro, who admitted to punching and hitting Gabriel the day he died, who admitted to losing control, hurting and inadvertently killing the boy he allegedly cared for and loved. The boy he regularly joked was gay. The boy he and Pearl shot with a BB gun, time and time again. The child they stuffed inside of the small dark cabinet and fed soiled kitty litter to. It was a sentence at best that was commensurate with their actions. With respect to uh, Mr. Isario Aguirre, I'll ask counsel, uh, do you waive arraignment for judgment and sentencing? Yes. Any legal cause where judgment should not be pronounced? None other than previously All right. It is a judgment and sentence of this court that for the crime of murder in the first degree committed under the special circumstance that the murder was intentional and involved the infliction of torture, defendant Asadio Aguirre shall be put to death within the walls of the California State Prison at San Quentin. Gabriel was lying on the floor, blood coming out of his mouth. He had no pulse, no heartbeat, and he wasn't breathing. <laughs> And the last thing he saw was the defendant 
standing over him, punching him, kicking him, calling him again, beating him to death. The defendant took everything from Gabriel, snatched his whole life away. And then when they called 911, like I told you, it wasn't to help Gabriel or save him, it was to cover up the murder and torture. Because they had tricked and deceived DCFS, law enforcement, the school, and counselors for eight months. And they thought they could do it again. They thought they could do it again. Lead prosecutor Jonathan Hatami, who so viciously pursued justice for Gabriel until the very end of the trial, showed a level of empathy and compassion from a place few can understand, because he too was abused as a child. And though the defense filed for a mistrial just prior to the penalty phase, claiming a conflict of interest existed in his ability to maintain his emotions and neutrality throughout the case, Hatami continued fighting for Gabriel, for justice, and for all of the other children like Gabriel who fly under the radar every single day, their suffering invisible to the world, until it is either exposed and appropriately remedied, or until, after going unnoticed, it's too late. But Gabriel's story doesn't end here, as so many other children's have before because his death revealed the cracked foundation of the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services. Those surrounding Gabriel did what they were supposed to do. They reported the warning signs of abuse. Gabriel's teacher, Jennifer Garcia, repeatedly reported Gabriel's alarming behavior and allegations to caseworker Stephanie Rodriguez, including the bruising and the claims that Gabriel made regarding his mother and Asadro beating him with the metal part of a belt the BB gun, the suicide notes that Gabriel had written and left in his desk, the boy who was regularly bound at the hands and his feet handcuffed and stuffed into the cabinet in Pearl's bedroom, left alone to suffer and eventually to die. But in an extremely rare turn of events, four social workers with the DCFS were criminally charged with falsifying records and child abuse related to their roles in the receipt, processing, and eventual dismissal of complaints filed alleging Gabriel's serious abuse. As of August 2019, they are still awaiting trial in a landmark case that will answer the question, might those tasked with reviewing and investigating child abuse be held criminally responsible in the instances where they make the wrong call? Well, that does it for another episode of Invisible Choir. Our aim is to bring voice to the voiceless. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And check out our Patreon, Invisible Choir Premium, where you can get early releases, bonus monthly episodes, and a weekly mini-episode every single Friday. The sources for this episode can be found in the show notes and at invisiblechoir.com. We rely on the hard work and journalistic integrity of many local and national news sources to produce this show. Without them, we wouldn't be able to bring these cases to a broader, worldwide audience. We thank them for their work 
and we thank you for listening.